0: Hi everyone, I'm your host Ng, and welcome to the 49th episode of the podcast. Sounds about right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Eleanor Yanaka, author of the book The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. What makes for the ideal woman? How should she look, love and be? In this high-spirited history, medievalist Eleanor Yannicka turns to the Middle Ages, the era that bridged the ancient world and modern society, to unfurl its suppositions about women and reveal what's shifted over time and what hasn't. It was great discussing the book with her and I hope you enjoy the episode. So the first thing I want to run by you, or highlight rather, is that you say in the intro that if you want to understand how Western society got its current attitudes about women, we must retract its steps back to medieval Europe. How heavily would you say medieval Europe has influenced society today? And is that the main reason why a book like this is necessary?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. So I I think that oftentimes people overlook how much medieval society has influenced us. Because you know, that's kind of like one of the h- highlights of modernity is specifically doing down the middle ages and saying, oh, it was this time of idiocy and nobody knew what they were talking about and everything is always better in the modern world. But surprisingly, that attitude allows lots of the sort of medieval sociological ideas about, well, anything really, but certainly gender, to kind of slip through unnoticed. So What we tend to do is keep the same conclusions about women that the medieval period has. So essentially, you know, women are kind of a sort of not a man. They're not as good as men. And, uh, you know, they always need to be kind of kept an eye on because they sort of can't be trusted out in the world like men can. But what we also kind of keep as a result of that are specifically kind of knee-jerk reactions about how, well, women are stupid, women, you know, women can't be trusted, women are overly emotional, you know, women are kind of like children. And these are big things that we, we do keep from the medieval period. But then what's really surprising is that there's all sorts of common sense ideas about what women are or why you have to have these ideas about women and why they have to be kept controlled that we've completely jettisoned. Right, so you know the idea, for example, that women are insatiably horny is something that we've completely got rid of, um, and we've actually gone in the opposite direction to women are not interested in sex at all, which is is no better. You know, it's not it's not better to think that. But one of the things that I think is really important about seeing these differentiations, you know, seeing where we are keeping the same ideas is important. But so is it important to see. Actually, we've completely changed ideas about a lot of things, but we've kept the position of women the same and so when you realize that we change things all the times as well then this helps us to understand oh wait no this is really a social construct you know the gendered ideas about what a woman is supposed to be or how they ought to be treated in society are just things that we're making up constantly and there isn't some great thread that shows that women have always been thought of as one particular thing which means we need to keep doing it for i don't know the sake of kind of like a a historical line and and we can just stop doing it but until you really understand how these things are constructed it's very difficult to have those critiques i think
0: I also got the impression from your chapter titled Back to Basics that the medievals were kind of influenced by ancient Greece as well, weren't they? Would you mind touching on that a bit? Eleanor.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, funnily enough, in all of the, the conversations that you have about how, you know, medieval people are kind of stupid and you should ignore everything that they say. But then everyone is like, oh, and then in the Renaissance, people got a lot more classical knowledge and things were better. And I'm like, all medieval people cared about is classical knowledge. That's the They love it. They love it. You know, for them, this is kind of like the bread and butter of being an educated person is to be educated classically. And, you know, they literally learned to read and write on Cicero and Aristotle and Plato and they keep all of these same ideas so ideas about um women for example in the humoral theory you know humoral theory being classical uh which is the idea that kind of the, the humans and the world and everything in it are made up of the four elements which are earth air fire and water in humans bodies this corresponds to the four humors which is blood black bile yellow bile and uh oh yeah the thing that means uh, like mucus i can't remember now ah great historian work here it's going well (laughs) so but part of that is corresponding that everything is either hot and dry cold or wet and so men are hot and dry and women are cold and wet and this is kind of a way to see them as physical objects and beings and that's a very very a classical way to describe women and think about women and medieval people are just like yes that's absolutely the case, you know, and Aristotle kind of goes a little bit further than this. And the way that he says that we should consider women to be is that women are kind of like deformed men or inside out men. So as far as Aristotle's concerned, the default human being is a man. And then something happens during pregnancy that is bad, <laughs> which ends up making a woman. And medieval people are like, yes, this is great. I, I'll take it all. I believe every single word of this. And then all they do is kind of then slap some Christianity on top of it and that's kind of how you get medieval ideas about women and you know that's a really easy thing to do because you just kind of look to the Adam and Eve story and you're like oh look it says here that women were made after men just like Aristotle says right and oh they're responsible for all the sin in the world great you know? <laughs> and then that and that's what makes um, medieval conceptions of women and and they're very very close to classical ones there is the, the major differentiation is Christianity as opposed to paganism so it's not as though you know, women were really seen as being on par with men in the classical era. They are no more enlightened uh, than medieval people were at all whatsoever. And I think that that's really lost a lot of the time. There are these kind of assumptions that are made that, oh, well, everything was quite equitable, I don't know, in Greek society or something. And I'm like, oh, maybe it was still a slave state. <laughs> you know, like Ancient Athens was not it was like some kind of wonderful place to be unless you are literally Aristotle. But I think everybody kind of thinks that they are going to be Aristotle if they go back in time. So that's where we get these ideas.
0: I'm glad you mentioned like, the biblical idea as well, because I wanted to also ask you, what were the similarities between medieval and Christian texts?
1: Oh, yeah. So basically, the church fathers who exist in kind of late antiquities, so that's to say before, well, Western Rome falls, we're not quite at the medieval period yet, they shape a lot of these ideas. So these are people like uh, St. Saint Augustine, St. Saint Jerome, and they, a Trullian, people like this, who, who sit down and write biblical commentaries and theology, you know, the people who are really hammering out, well, what does it mean to be Christian? What are these ideas that we want? And a lot of this, especially when it is, in regards to women is expressly about sexual things. So really interestingly, St. Augustine has this kind of idea that in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man, sex would have existed, but it wouldn't have been sexy. And this is kind of like the thing is, so when... Eve eats from the tree of knowledge and Adam and Eve become aware that they're naked. It's not the knowledge of their nakedness that's the problem. The problem is that they find that sexy and they're turned on by it. And so that's what introduces sexual sin to the world. And so because Eve is the one whose idea was to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. She's kind of responsible for sexual sin being brought into the world. So sexuality is kind of pinned on women right away. And then in addition to that as well, you know, from a Christian's perspective, their ideal is that, you know, the ideal human isn't going to have sex. You know, the ideal human is going to be St. Jerome. St. Augustine, not so much. St. Augustine had plenty of sex before he joined the church. You know, he's kind of a, a latecomer to the whole thing. But you, you're going to be someone who is necessarily celibate. And you're just going to, like, to devote yourself to God and make it through life that way. And obviously, the church understands that most people aren't going to be cut out for that. But still, that that's the ideal. And so because the ideal person is going to kind of forego sex, they're going to be really religiously centered and religiously minded. Well, that's what men can do, right? Because men are naturally, quote unquote, more rational. And because they're more rational, they're more religious, and they know that sex is bad for them. And they're like, oh, well, women can't do this because they are stupid and horny. And so uh, there's this, you know, kind of way of automatically classifying people as not going to be able to live up to the ideals of Christianity. And women are just automatically at a lesser place because of it and then everything else sort of follows on from there but it is quite interesting um how these guys who are meant to be celibate how much time they spend thinking about sex they're just constantly (laughs) thinking about it and writing about it and and then accusing women of being the ones who think about it all the time which is quite funny um but it really all kind of stems from there in in a lot of ways
0: Hmm, yeah you're right theologians had a lot of things to say which i eventually want to speak to you about as well What influence would you say that literature in the sense of the Canterbury Tales and Courtly Love also had in terms of influencing the views of women around that period as well?
1: Yeah, so the Canterbury Tales and courtly love literature are really fun to look at because this is when we are getting down to, well, what do ordinary people think and what are ordinary people writing about? You know, in short, Chaucer is a member of the nobility. You know, he's really rich. But anyone who is able to kind of write things down, they're going to be pretty rich because they know how to read and write, right? So it's like automatically you're probably in the higher realms of society. But what these do is they kind of let us know, well, what are popular conceptions about sexuality? What are popular conceptions about romance and relationships? Uh, and they do line up with what the church is saying you know um although the difference here is that in popular literature it's kind of like oh well that's quite funny you know that's that's quite funny and, and and don't we all like it you know and you know, with courtly love literature, there's a lot of it is particularly based in saying, and how do you then kind of get around the morals in order to have sex with people who are married? Because that's what courtly love literature is. It's about um, rich people hanging out at court and getting crushes on other people who are married for business reasons. Right. And so there's, oh, well, how do how do I manage to kind of seduce a woman who is married uh which also again it's just so funny the cognitive dissonance because on the one hand it's like oh well all women are very horny but on the other you're going to really have to go out of your way in order to seduce them once they're married so it's just
0: you
1: know <laughs> make it make sense but okay so you have a lot of them kind of negotiating things or for example making references to how you can have sex with married women and then it won't be a problem which is basically like avoid penis and vagina sex So, you don't want to knock somebody up if they're married to someone else because that's the trouble, right? It's not love. And it's not sex outside of marriage that are necessarily the problem. It's heirs outside of marriage. So you have to be very, very careful around that. So we see that even though you're supposed to think it's very bad that women are horny, you know, that lots of dudes are very excited about this idea, you know, and it's, you know, half the plot points in the Canterbury Tales are about like, oh, and someone married a hot young wife and she wanted to like sleep with the local young man instead of her old husband and so this is how it went about you know and it's just kind of like there's this accepted idea of that and and sure that's done for comedic purposes but also there is this kind of acceptance that that is how the world works and so that's why you can make jokes about it right i want to talk to you
0: about women's beauty and That's something that you expand on in the chapter men looking at women. Why were the medievals so vague in talking about beauty?
1: This I find so interesting because it takes them hundreds of years to to start doing it. And uh, to be fair, it looks like, you know, ancient people were not great at it either. A lot of the time, especially for early medieval people and, you know, ancient Greek or ancient Roman people, what they will say if someone is considered beautiful is she was beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> you're like, oh, great. Thanks. That's really helpful. And, um, you know, partially I think some of this has to do with the whole idea of, you know, beauty being in the eye of the beholder, where if you kind of write something down, then you're trapping it. And what if somebody doesn't find that to be beautiful? Then that's sort of what the question is. But, you know, I suppose if you go looking in ancient literature and, you know, you say, OK, well, where's the description of Helen of Troy? And this is what I say, because that's what medieval people go looking for, right? Because they're like, we have to base everything off of classical ideas. So who's the most beautiful classical woman? It's Helen of troy and uh ancient greg's like well she was blonde you know and, and that's that's kind of like the most important thing about her it's like she's very very beautiful as she's blonde she's often has white shoulders and has like nice clothes they'll say that she has really nice shawls that sort of thing and you're like okay great so eventually medieval people though they want to give literary depictions of women and they want to know well how do I write down a description of a woman who's hot how do I do that and in the 12th century this makes sense because it's connected to this thing we call the 12th century renaissance where there's this big kind of like flowering in in literature and art and you know you see the rise of the universities things like this and they say okay well we're going to figure out what it means to write about a beautiful woman and there's two guys in particular Geoffrey Vincent and uh, Thomas Landry yeah there you go and they write down how poets should describe women and this ossifies this idea of what a beautiful woman should be and basically you kind of do a scan from the head to the toes and she should have blonde hair a high free forehead which means that it, to us it kind of looks like a, a receding hairline they love that they absolutely love it that's their favorite thing um she has to have black arched eyebrows and it can't be a monobrow white skin red cheeks white teeth good smelling breath White shoulders, small breasts, a pot belly, thick thighs and ass, uh, long legs and small feet, and like this is this is what's hot, and it takes off so much that basically from that point on, if you see a picture of a woman in the middle ages and she's supposed to be beautiful, that's what she looks like and like that that's just it. They do not deviate from it. that is just what they look like, and you know, even if you see women who. Exist in real life. Oftentimes, if they don't match up with that description, they'll just leave that part out. So, say if she's a brunette, they just kind of won't mention her hair color, or you know, eventually, for example, they they decide that gray eyes are the hottest kind of eyes. They've got this very specific thing for gray eyes. So, if she's got brown eyes, you just won't won't mention that. You know, these sorts of things. And that is interesting because it allows us to kind of read between the lines, even if we see literary depictions that are really scant. On, on, on description later, we'll say, oh, well, she must be a brunette, you know, otherwise why didn't they mention she was blonde because they will let you know if she's blonde. But the other thing that's really quite interesting, I think, about a beauty standards and one of the reasons why I really wanted to write about it is that all of these things uh, really favor rich women. So in the Middle Ages, these are all things that you can expect of, I mean, not blonde hair so much, but like, sure, if you've got time to dye your hair blonde, then it's more likely that you're rich, right? But, you know, having white skin, well, that means you're not a peasant. You're not out in the field all day and getting a suntan and um, having enough of, like kind of fatty foods that you've got a pot belly. Oh, wow. Like you're eating white bread. <laughs> like That's that's good living, you know? And and again, you're not plowing, like you're not working it all off. And, you know, having like very soft hands, you're, you're not working on a farm, you know, all of these things are just basically saying, she's rich, she's rich, she's rich, she's rich over and over again, which our idea of what beauty is looks pretty much nothing. Like medieval women at all? We tend to think that medieval women look pregnant, and we're sort of like, hmm, you know, whenever we see these idealized beauties. Uh, but for them, what this is saying is like, oh, this is wealth, you know, this is an ostentatious display of wealth, and we still do that, you know, we love that. It's like that whatever the hardest thing to be is, we're like, yep, that's the one, <laughs> you know, and and that's how you can have you know rich women like the Kardashians like completely change their body shape because they've got the money for it, right? Whereas the rest of us are just kind of like stuck with it.
0: want to ask you about what the medieval theologians thoughts were about sex because they was of the belief that anything other than missionary was adulterous wasn't they
1: yeah yeah so there are so many rules as far as the church is concerned about how and when you're supposed to have sex because basically they you know again you shouldn't have sex right ideally don't have sex but they also know that not everyone is going to be able to do this and they also know that you're supposed to make more people right. So, okay, well, you got to get people from somewhere. So it better be through sex. So like, okay, well, you're going to have to have sex. But obviously, first of all, you need to be married. That's the number one most important thing. But then it's like it's got to be with the intention of getting pregnant. You know, it can't just be like, I feel like having fun. No, 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 no. You have to be trying to get pregnant. And so that means you can't have sex if a woman is on her period, if a woman is pregnant or if a woman is breastfeeding either, because that reduces the chances of conception. Then you're not supposed to have sex when it's light out or if there's a lot of lights on. You're not supposed to be fully naked. Um, You're not supposed to do too much foreplay. Like you're not supposed to like make out and get too turned on. You're not supposed to have sex on Sundays because that's a holy day. You're not supposed to have sex on Wednesdays because you oftentimes give confession on Wednesdays. You're not supposed to have sex on Saturdays because then you might be too horny in church on Sunday. So you you can't do it then. You're not supposed to have sex during Lent. You're not supposed to have sex during Advent. You're not supposed to have, you know, there are all these times that you're not supposed to be having sex. And the church is like, that's it. If you have sex at any of these times, then you need to confess. And then similarly, any kind of sex that can't lead to conception—that's sodomy, right? And so sodomy is, and that—that's just what it means. It's like the kinds where you can't get pregnant. So that's sure it means anal sex, which is what we tend to mean today. But it also means oral sex. It also means like hand jobs. It also means um, interfemoral sex, which they're—they're they're really into kind of like humping legs. This is big for medieval people. I don't know. Um, they love it. Fine. I know this because they're constantly getting told off by priests to knock that off. Like, okay, fine. And, uh, you know, obviously this also precludes what we would call gay sex, but they don't have a concept of being gay. They're just like, either you're having the wrong kind of sex or you're not. And and so you're a sodomite or you're not. Right. And then. The reason why missionary sex is important to them is that reinforces what they think the ultimate gender hierarchy should be. So during missionary sex, the man is on top and the man is in control. And that is what you want to reinforce. Whereas if a woman goes on top, then that's putting a woman on top. And then what they really don't want you to do is doggy style. They're like jesus don't do that because you're being like an animal now and they, that's they do kind of use the term doggy style it's like in canon retro is what, what they call it. so like behind like a dog is sort of the, what they call it and they're like that's the worst because then you're just kind of admitting to not being really human and the worry there is that if you have sex in those positions as well then you're going to end up with a daughter Dun dun dun, you know, like the, the worst thing that could happen, right? You're gonna end up with a daughter because you subverted the divine order of things. So there is this constant trying to reinforce what bad kinds of sex are. Now, having said that, did anyone listen? Probably not. You know, like, as I'm saying, you've got all these, we call them penitentials. They're kind of like guidebooks for priests to say, like, what do you ask if someone comes to confession so that, you know, and and then it tells you what their punishment is. And there's lots of questions about sex. So obviously people are having sex in all of these various ways. And I mean, fundamentally, if people listened to every single rule the church had about sex, no one in the Middle Ages would have ever been born in the month of September, Mm. right? Because you wouldn't have, no one had sex in December right and that's not true that didn't happen so you know like that that tells you what you need to know and i i think it's this is a really important point to make because you know a lot of the sources that survived us from the middle ages are from the church because they're the ones who had the money to keep a big old library this whole time right so we know all about what they thought and people just go oh everyone in the middle ages must have been really religious and really listened to the church and i'm like well babe they were very religious but that doesn't mean they were listening Right. So, you know, they just kind of did it and felt bad about it. You know, it's it's classic. It's a classic thing.
0: No, it's true. And also from that chapter as well, I got the impression that men were very concerned about women seeking, um, looking outside for sexual gratification and just the whole concept of women being heavily sexualized as opposed to men not being so much. Why was that the case during them times, would you say, Eleanor?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is just because sex is bad, right? So if sex is bad, that must mean women like it, Fair right? Enough. So that, that's the number the one thing. So if anything's bad, women like it. The end. Uh, but then also some of it is just kind of observed. So I think that they talk about all the time is how um, women, when they have sex, want to keep having sex. It's a Boccaccio line from the Decameron, which is that... Um, Whereas one rooster can service 10 hens, 10 men are scarcely able to satisfy one woman. So, you know, there's this idea that women, the moment they have sex, they want more sex, and they want more sex, and they want more sex, and they're, they're constantly interested in it. And things like, you know, women could still be interested in having sex when they're on their period. Ooh, very bad. Well, they know they can't get pregnant. All of these things will be brought up over and over again where they're like, well, cows don't do that. You know, cows are only interested in having sex when they can get pregnant. And so women are these kind of like very naughty sorts of people who are interested in all the kind of sex that is sort of what the church is expressly saying is off the table you know women are a bit more interested in you know what we would call foreplay and what they would call sodomy why oh because they're insatiable sex demons right you know and, and they're they're trying to have sex for the wrong reason which is to have fun whereas men are trying to have sex for the right reason which is to have kids so it basically, it comes down to observed things about women, which, you know, we would all kind of go, oh, yeah, all right. So that's that's like a thing we can see that that certainly still exists. But then on top of that, it's the fact that if sex is bad, ladies like it. <laughs> that's just it, you know.
0: It's terrible, isn't it? Um, and would you mind touching on the disturbing theory that orgasms are only needed for conception, Eleanor?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a really funny one because when you say this to people at first, they go, oh, that's quite good because, you know, so basically there's this thing called the two seed theory and two seed theory is really prevalent in the Middle Ages. There's some people who think there's only one seed theory, like Aristotle, he thought basically it was just like there's semen and that's it, which means that like women are kind of like ground. They're like dirt that you put seeds in and that's what grows a baby. So thanks, thanks, Aristotle. Real genius out here. Um, But most people believe in two seed theory, which is that, okay, well, if men, ejaculate when they orgasm and that produces reproductive material then women also ejaculate during orgasm but it's internal so you can't see it so there's this idea that women have semen as well as men and then the thing that makes the baby is the semen mixing together and then that's what makes a baby and so then women will need to orgasm during sex if what you want is to get pregnant And so, okay, yeah, like, this sort of seems like, oh, that might be nice. That might be nice that, like, you know, you want women to orgasm during sex. But there's the downside to this, which is if a woman comes forward and says, hey, I've been raped, and then she gets pregnant, everyone goes, ah, but it seems like you had a nice time, right? Because so you can't really have been raped because you're pregnant now. So there's automatically this flip side, which is actually quite negative there. And also, if we kind of think a lot of people in the Middle Ages, they're getting married for business reasons. Most peasants, they can kind of do what they want. Like, it's better to be poor in that respect because no one cares who you marry, right? So you might get married for love then. But if you're getting married for business reasons, like up among the nobility or even like among the guilds, if you're kind of like a middle class person in the cities... Then, you know, like, you just marry the guy or the woman that your parents told you to, and this kind of, like, makes sense. And if you're just kind of having sex because you're like, well, I've got to produce an heir, really, you just want to get in and get out, right? Like, just just kind of do the right thing. And so if then it's just taking forever because there's this idea that you need to be orgasming, it's just like, ugh, th- th- there's this whole other level on top of it, right? So... It's quite interesting because when we talk about orgasms and women, we're kind of like, oh, that's that's quite great. That's very freeing and right on. And I'm like, well, medieval people found a way to make it bad. So <laughs> congrats on that one. You know, fantastic stuff.
0: Lastly, You highlight in the final chapter that one thing modern and medieval society agree on is the most important thing about women is the way they look. Mm -hmm. Does this show that we still have a long way to go when it comes to breaking down barriers of objectifying women?
1: Oh, God, yes. You know, so it's quite interesting because we've come a long way in terms of what we think a beautiful woman is. And actually, you know, we change that all the time now. So like every five weeks, we've got a new decision about what it is to be a a beautiful woman. we're like, no, we've changed our mind. It's skinny again. You're like, oh, oh, great. So that is kind of part of it. But it's always, always something that women have to be, right? The most important thing that a woman is, is beautiful. You know, you can be beautiful and smart, or you can be beautiful and kind. But, you know, the thing to be is beautiful first. And the way medieval people think about this is that if a woman is beautiful or anyone's beautiful, really, it means that they are beautiful basically in line with the divine wishes so someone being naturally beautiful it's a sign that god loves them right it's a sign that god loves them so the trouble with that is okay if you're a woman and you're told you're supposed to be beautiful and that being beautiful is a sign that god loves you and what if you don't live up to that beauty standard it's like oh well the god doesn't love me and then when you're told that this is the thing that you need to do in order to get married this is the thing that you which is you know the most important thing a woman can do and this is the thing that you need to do to be kind of accepted in society but then very importantly you're not supposed to try to be beautiful at all whatsoever like they're obsessed with high arched eyebrows but if you pluck your eyebrows oh you're going to hell don't you dare pluck your hairline Uh, don't you dare put rouge on even though you're supposed to have red cheeks don't you can't be trying to stay out of the sun in order to be white you know these are all things that you know they, they expressly say will land you in hell Right. Like that's you're going to be in trouble. Um, but we still do that. Right. We, we're still doing that with women where it's like, oh, if you wear a lot of makeup, then you, oh, well, then she's not really beautiful. You know, if you get surgery, then you're not really beautiful. If you wear fake tan and you don't have a real tan, then you're not really you know, we do. We are still doing this exact same thing, just maybe minus the whole thing about religion. You know, we we kind of take that out, but we certainly still equate beauty, especially in women with kind of moral worth that if someone is beautiful, they just have more say in how things go. And it, it will always be one of the kind of first go to things that anyone ever calls a woman if they dislike her so, you know, they'll just go straight to ugly. You know, it's always ugly bitch, right? Like that's that's always the thing. But ugly is first and foremost, because we have not moved on that at all whatsoever. We just change what the demands of women are. In order to live up to that standard,
0: that was Eleanor Janaka, author of the book The Once and Future Sex Going Medieval and Women's Roles in Society. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Eleanor for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.